Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. This week, part two of my interview with Stan Honey, a professional navigator and entrepreneur who's probably best known for creating the yellow first down line you see when watching football games on TV. In part one of the interview, we discussed how Stan got started in sailing, his introduction to navigation, and his racing. And if you haven't heard that interview yet, go back and take a listen. In this second part of the interview, I talk with Stan about the work he's doing today to fix problems he sees in racing and sailing. We begin with a conversation about the work he's doing with the Sailing Yacht Research Foundation, an organization focused on advancing the science and analysis of sailboat performance. There's a lot of detailed information in this interview, so listen closely and let's jump right in. You've been so involved in technology and sailing. What excites you today? Well, the, one of the projects that I'm working on at SURF, the Sailing Out Research Foundation, is we, the organization was originally endowed with you know, over a million bucks from Terry Kohler, the guy that owned North Sales. Terry's since passed away. He asked us to you know, spend that money in a way that would benefit the sport. And Terry was particularly, he's an MIT guy, and he wanted us to spend the money on the technical things that would benefit the sport. We financed a number of research studies that would benefit naval architects and benefit rating systems. So we financed a study on to measure heeled aerodynamics, you know, the aerodynamics of sailboats when they heel over. Mm-hmm. And we discovered the reason why the America's Cup rule and the IMS rule um, were favoring tender boats is that they were overestimating how quickly the rig depowers as the boat sealed over. So that was just a breakthrough study that enabled rating systems to do a much better job. Because we're a nonprofit, you know, all the research that we fund gets published immediately. It's sort of like the National Science Foundation or something. The, um, we did another study that we realized that naval architects only have access to public tank test data on conventional sailboats, but You know, whereas modern boats are kind of wide and light by comparison, but there wasn't any public tank test data. So we ran a series of CFD data on wide light boats and um, published it. So we've we've funded a number of projects like that, but the most recent project that we're funding is a um, development of an app, a smartphone app. The first objective of that app is for people in big boats, you know, to carry it around during their races and use it to capture performance data. And then that performance data would then be usable by the rating systems to improve their estimates of the performance of different sailboats in different conditions. Then the other application of that app would be to allow the racers on big boats to get real-time standings, no matter what rating system they're racing under. And so it would do real-time standings, even if you're using PCS, which is enormously difficult to compute real-time standings, or time on time, or time on distance, or you know whatever the, whatever the approach is. The um, app enables boats to see you know, how they're doing relative to those other boats alongside them that have different ratings. 
another application for the app that I'm particularly interested in is it'll do some of the things that we did in the America's Cup in the Liveline system. Assuming that the race committee puts tracking devices on the race committee boat and on the pin boat and on the other marks, the app would be able to give you the real-time positions of the starting line so that you don't have to ping the starting line, which is always a you know, a dangerous part of a big boat race is the ping parade when all the boats are trying to ping the location of the ends of the line. It would get rid of that. And it would also give boats a more accurate position of the line because as the marks drift around after you've pinged them, you know, you'd get updated positions. And then with time, at some level of racing, some fleets may choose to actually use it for automatic OCS, where the, the cloud processor you know does the OCS and so then the readout that everybody gets on board their boat in terms of their position relative to the line would agree exactly with the data that the race committee chairman is seeing for people's position relative to the line the goal of that would be to make it so that you never have a general recall and in the America's Cup we did all of that and we actually had you know electronic umpiring but in the America's Cup, the data was perfect. We had, you know, five measurements a second, and we knew where every boat was within two centimeters and a tenth of a degree. But in this case, just using smartphones, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than the electronics we had on the America's Cup, but the data isn't perfect. You know, there's still going to be a meter or so of uncertainty. Uh -huh. And so then the sailors have to just decide that the data isn't perfect. There's a certain amount of uncertainty, but nobody... It's not unfair, it's just there's a little bit of randomness mixed in. And so the sailors have to decide whether they would trade off a certain amount of you know, uncertainty for the fact that every race actually starts. Yeah. Most sailors um, instantly say that they would far prefer that to the current approach because they point out that the current approach isn't perfect either. You know, the race committees can't see the whole line and, you know, they make mistakes, even though they don't, you know, they're, they're well-meaning. And so it, it may well be that this app ends up being used for, you know, electronic OCS. And at the recreational level, it could actually be used for cloud-based umpiring. This is a speculative part of the app development, but the thought is, you know, people are wondering, why is there so much less racing than there used to be, you know, 10 years ago and 20 years ago? And some people think it's because it's people have less time and racing is too intimidating and people don't want to get yelled at. They don't know the rules and they don't sure as heck don't want to go into the protest room. And so some people who you run across, you know, in a marina and you ask them, hey, you ought to go do the Wednesday night race. They say, I, you know, they can't be bothered when I get yelled at. They don't know the, they don't. They're not confident they know the rules. But in the future, if you could tell that person, hey, you know, it's not, it's not hard. You just tape your cell phone to your companion way or your mast, start after the starting time. And if your phone's green, keep racing. And if your phone turns red, do circles. <laughs> if your phone turns green again, then carry on sailing and just make sure your phone's green before you finish. And nobody will yell at you. You'll never have to go to the room. And if you want to figure out why the heck the phone turned red, and you want to avoid that for the next race, well then go online and see what you did and you know, learn from it. You'd have to use a slightly different version of the rules um, in order to do that. 
because some of the calls you want to make in advance, you know, like a port starboard call, you know, based on the position, the relative position of the boats as they're approaching one another on a port starboard, you know, you might turn the port tacker's phone yellow. Then he would know that he's got to either duck or he's got to tack early. But if he tries to cross, even if he makes it, he's out and he's got to do circles. So you, so you make the call in advance because, you know, a port starboard call, you could never actually make that call properly in the cloud after the fact because there's too much context that's required to make that call. So you touched on the 34th America's Cup and the work you did um, with Ellison, with the live line and, and, and making the rules more accessible to people and, and visually accessible. Um, were you pleased with, with how that was received and, and with the public reaction to sailboat racing, which is, has been hard for people to grasp in the past? Um, yeah, I think it was a wonderful project, and I was I was delighted that you know Russell and Jimmy Spittle and Larry, you know, gave me the opportunity to get together a team of people to build that system, the LiveLine system that did the augmented reality graphics for TV and did the um, electronic umpiring, etc. I mean, it was just a, for me, it was the ability to combine my two careers you know, as a professional sailor, and then to also combine that with my career doing computer graphics for sports, and to be able to do a computer graphic for sports system, you know, like the yellow line or the puck or NASCAR, to do the system like that for my own sport was just a, a dream come true. So it was a, a wonderful opportunity. The, um, the challenging thing about sailing is that and this is true of a lot of sports that aren't first tier sports is the finances are challenging. Mm. And, um, you know, in the business of sport vision where we did, you know, the first downline for football, K zone for baseball, NASCAR tracking for motorsports, all of those systems were for, you know, first tier sports and they were expensive, but it worked because, you know, the sport was worth billions. The thing about sailing is when, you know, Larry first asked me if we could do it. In fact, well, the full story goes back to 95 when I was navigating Sayonara for Ellison. That was when we were working on the yellow first down line and the hockey puck tracking system. And Larry's brilliant. And we got to know one another because we sailed together in Sayonara and did a Hawaii race together. And um, Larry you know, asked, well, what would you do for sailing if you could do one of these augmented reality systems for sailing? And I had thought about it and I told him, well, you know, you do the ley lines and you do the ladder line and you'd show who's who. And um, that was in 95. And then in 2010, I was actually in the Southern Ocean on Groupama 3. We were going around the world trying to set the record. That was Groupama um, 3? Yeah. But I was in, I was in, um, in the Southern Ocean and then um, Larry was interviewed on in Fortune magazine, and he, somebody asked him, "So you won the cup? You always said you were going to, you know, revolutionize sailing on TV. What are you going to do?" And Larry said, "Well, I'm going to look up an old 
colleague I know through sailing, you know, Stan, honey, and we're going to put you lines on the water and you'll see the ley lines and the ladder lines. <laughs> and it was 15 years later and he remembered it perfectly. And so then when I got back, there was all these phone calls from Russell and Jimmy and Larry. So we met, but then I was smarter because I'd done systems for, you know, football, baseball, basketball, motorsports. And I'd also bid on systems for volleyball, lacrosse. And I realized that for the, for any sport other than the first tier sports, it just didn't work because you couldn't afford it. Hmm. So when I met with, you know, Larry and Russell and those guys, you know, that's what I said. I said, I would love to do it. And I can guarantee you that it would work. I mean, I, I know we've done the, enough of these systems, so we know how to do it. But my advice is that it doesn't make economic sense. The sport just doesn't, isn't big enough to support a system like that. So my suggestion is you not do it, but we could do it and it would be great. And, you know, Larry said, okay, well, tell me what it's going to cost. So, you know, I went away and spent a couple of weeks and came back with the, the number and they said, go ahead. So we built the Liveline system and then I was delighted with it with the project, meaning we were on budget the whole time. We were on schedule the whole time. It worked, you know, as well as anybody could have imagined. And we did more stuff than we had originally budgeted to in terms of, you know, rendering the wind just so you could see the disturbed wind coming off the sails. So it was a huge success technically, but I think I was probably, my fears were probably still true it was too much money to spend for the sport. You know, sailing isn't enough of a spectator sport because there's just not enough people who sail. Whereas all those other sports, you know, lots of us at some point when we're kids, you know, we play football, we play basketball, you know, we play volleyball, we all drive cars. But sailing, you know, very few people sail and very few people ever expect to sail. And so then the question is, you know, can you make a successful regularly scheduled media sport out of a sport that nobody does. The Olympics are a great example where the Olympics are successful you know, every four years when they're on TV and nobody does a lot of those sports that are in the Olympics and people watch anyway. But other than the Olympics, nobody's ever really made a financial success out of a sport that nobody does. Um, and yeah. so that's the real challenge for sailing. And so the answer to your question is, was I happy with how it came out? I think the answer is yes, technically. You know, it was, it was a dream job. I think this, the TV we did for the 34th and 35th Cup was among the best sports TV that's ever been done. The story for the 34th Cup was extraordinary. That oh, really? was, you know, with seven races down. So the combination of the, production, the direction, the technical graphics, and the story. I think that was among the best sports stories that have ever been televised. But it, it still didn't make any sense financially. Yeah. You know, it didn't pay, you know, in the Yankee sense. Of it. Right. <laughs> Will it pay? <laughs> the answer is no. Uh, the cup this next time, you know, they've gotten back to the model of every team has a billionaire. Um, and at least that's viable. And then the sale GP, the live line is being used for the sale GP. I sure hope that Russell makes it work commercially. And if he does, that would be the first time anybody's ever made, you know, sailing work, you know, as a commercial media business. 
but the jury is still out. Yeah. Um, but he's got great boats. He's got great sailors. They're doing a really nice job at the TV. You know, live lines working great for him. It's still an open question. Can you make a financial success out of a sport that nobody does? And when I say nobody, that's obviously, I don't mean actually nobody. I just mean rel- there's relatively few people in the world that sail. Sure. Even outside of the U.S. Yeah, and in some countries, you know, like France and New Zealand, there is a lot of interest in sailing. And I think the reason is interesting. I think in New Zealand, sailing is one of the two sports where, you know, the little tiny country of New Zealand, they're competitive at the world level. You know, rugby and sailing, that's what they do. And both of those sports, you know, New Zealand is a you know, the best in the world, arguably. And then the French, I think the reason they're interested in sailing is because they crushed the Brits. <laughs> yeah. And so that makes them really interested. You know, when Taverly, you know, went out there and, um, you know, did so well in a sport that had been historically British with, you know, Robin Knox Johnson and Sir Francis Chichester. And then Taverly gets out there and sets the world on fire. I think that's why, you know, sailing suddenly burst onto the stage, you know, in France. <laughs> Any opportunity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this has been a fabulous conversation. Before I, I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about the about world sailing, which you're uh, the international governing body for, for sailing um, that you're involved in. Tell, tell us about your involvement there and, and what you're working on. In terms of offshore sailing, I've been working, I don't know, for the last decade on a number of projects. Um, one of them is to come up with a common measurement system. You know, everybody says, you know, gee, can't we all just have one rating system in the world? And that's kind of like, you know, asking, gee, can we only have one two-person trapeze dinghy in the world? And the answer <laughs> is no. You know, people have... Yeah. Um, boats come in and out of fashion. And when a fleet gets too hard, you know, people want to sail in some other fleet. So they try out a different boat. And so there's just things come and go and people are and sailing is too sort of fashion oriented. So I think rating rules will continue to come and go. But instead of focusing on having just one rating, if we focused on just having one measurement procedure, then it solves the problem for the sailors. Meaning if you can get your big boat measured once under the universal measurement system, and then you can take that data and go anywhere in the world and then you know spend your 200 bucks and they'll print out a certificate under whatever the rating system du jour is or whatever the rating system of that local area is, that solves the problem for the owners. Because hmm. the pain about the multiple rules isn't the multiple rules per se, the pain about the multiple rules is having to remeasure your boat because that's expensive and time consuming. Yeah. So one thing, one project was to introduce the, the universal measurement system so that a boat can get measured once anywhere in the world and then pro- certificates can be processed for it anywhere in the world. And then the interesting thing that's happening is that some of the rating is that, oh, well, first of all, all of the major rating systems now use that. But the thing that's happening at the world championship level in offshore racing is that IRC and ORC are being used in a combined fashion to score the world championships. 
So now you don't have one world, one rule, but you have at the world championship level, you've got one measurement system and one score. And then as far as the sailors are concerned, that's just as good as one world, one rule, because the sailors don't care how hard the computers have to work. Mm -hmm. They don't care whether the computers have to actually compute two different certificates and compute two different corrected times and combine them together. All the sailors care about is they just want to be measured once and they just want a single score. And so we're, we're getting to that point. So that's been a, a major project is to get UMS introduced and adopted around the country. Another project is the coal regs have been, well, there's parts of the coal regs that are way out of date. And so the lighting requirements of the international regulations for the prevention of collision at sea, which everybody calls the coal regs, if you look at boats over 20 meters, you know, the large big sailboats, um, essentially every big sailboat is in violation of international law for the running lights. Because all boats over 60 feet, you have to have, you have to have your side lights on the side of the boat. They have to be abaft the mast. They can't be in the bow. And your side lights, you know, the red green lights have to have those shield boards that you see on old boats, you know, the uh-huh. black boards, you have to have those. And if you're gonna put your side lights at the masthead, well, in principle, you can do that, but you still need the sideboards and you have to have three lanterns. You can't have a tricolor. (laughs) A tricolor meets all the same requirements. It's hard to fit on the top of a mast. Yeah, so what we've done is, you know, my committee, we decided that, you know, who's gonna fix it if it's not, you know, if we don't go to the trouble because we're the world governing body for the sport. So we did a huge amount of work. And if you're interested, the report is published on the World Sailing website, and I could, I could send you a link to it. But we went to a huge amount of trouble, and we did a very well-researched and very well-written and well-reasoned report describing recommended changes for the coal regs. And then we wrote a letter as World Sailing to the International Maritime Organization suggesting that the next time they do an update of their international regulations that they you know make these changes. And so that sounds like a, a small problem, but it's actually was growing to be a major problem that we're in a situation where all of the big boats in our sport were all in violation of international law. You know, that was something that we took on to fix that. Another one was the area of how to handle TSSs. You know, the TSS is the traffic separation scheme. We had gotten into a crazy situation where the racing rules of sailing that we race under all say that you have to abide by the coal regs, the international rules. And so if you carefully read through the racing rules, you realize that they invoke coal regs rule 10, which is the rule that deals with the traffic separation schemes. And yet, essentially every race in the world that sails in the vicinity of traffic separation schemes, the sailboats are violating them. And so what that meant was that if you start a transback or if you sail a Farallons race, you know, one competitor could protest the whole fleet and the entire fleet had violated the racing rules. And what is the violation in this case? The traffic separation scheme are lanes. You can't sail in a lane against the flow against the directional flow in that lane. Now in the US, 
what we do in the US and the vessel traffic system agrees with us and the pilots agree, and this is uniform in the US, is we take the approach that sailboats can go wherever they like. You just have to stay out of the way of ships. And if you piss off a ship and the ship fires his horn five times, which is the you know danger signal, mm-hmm. and if the ship brings in action against a sailboat, there'll be a protest and the sailboat will lose. So in areas like you know San Francisco, New York, LA, Boston, Newport, Charleston, you know all of these towns where there's major shipping ports and there's traffic separation schemes. They all work the same way, which is the sailboats stay out of the way, but we still race in the TSS because if we couldn't race in the TSS, you know, we couldn't race anywhere, like in San Francisco or LA, you'd be <laughs> toast if you didn't race in the TSS. So what we did was we in my committee, we came up with a recommended with an appendix to the racing rules to advise to give race committees three options of how to deal with it. And one option is kind of one option is the American approach, which is you modify the racing rule 48.2 to say, okay, instead of coal regs rule 10, what we're going to do is we're going to make it so that the sailboat can go anywhere they want, but if they piss off a ship, they're going to get thrown out. So, you know, it's worded differently, but that's essentially the, the essence of it. Sure. The sailboat can go anywhere in the TSS, but if you, you know, impede the navigation of a ship and the ship brings in action, then you will presume to have violated this rule and you, you'll lose the protest. So that's one option. The other option is what's used in the English Channel, which is the TSS is an exclusion zone. You just can't go in it. You have to stay out of it. And that would not work for the U.S. because in San Francisco, you know, if we couldn't sail on the TSS, you'd struggle to, um, to have a race. Sure. But it works in the English Channel because there's plenty of water. And so the sailboats can go around the TSSs. So that's what's used, you know, in the Fastnet and the channel race and whatnot. Got it. And the third approach is what you use if you actually have to use a TSS. So this would be the Straits of Gibraltar and the Straits of Dover and the North Sea, where, you know, you got sailboats, you're in a race, but you got to go through the Straits of Dover and it's highly regulated TSS. So what we do is we've just defined the, the terminology in Coal Regs Rule 10 so that race committees, so that juries can interpret it. So the Coal Regs Rule 10 has a lot of terminology that you don't find in the racing rules, terminology that says things like as close as is possible or as far as is possible. And you know a jury can't deal with that. So what we do is we have come up with a set of um, descriptions that a jury could deal with. So that allows the sailboat to actually use the TSS and to tack or jibe down the lane going their way and to abide by the TSS, but to abide by it in a way that a jury would be able to hear a protest if another competitor said that, you know, a boat didn't abide by it. So that was another major project is to clarify the TSSs because this was a landmine that had been in the racing rules for a while and it was just a landmine that was waiting for somebody to step on it because so many races were in a situation where every competitor could have gotten thrown out. Um, a third area is the areas of um, keel attachment. And this is a really hard problem that we've been working on for a few years now. But um, 
we're working on making some recommendations to ISO to change the Scantlings requirements for new design and build sailboats to strengthen the required keel attachment because it's a problem both on cruising boats as well as on racing boats. You know, there have been too many keels that are falling off. And in some cases, it's due to grounding damage or lack of maintenance. And in some cases, it's just due to keels that are designed too close to the edge. But either way, you know, as the late Carl Shoemaker used to say, you know, the stupidest place to save weight in a sailboat is, you know, in the keel attachment. Nobody wants keels to fall off. You know, owners don't want to buy boats that keels fall off. The racers that race on them don't want the keels to fall off. <laughs> People that buy secondhand boats expect the keels to stay attached for the life of the hull. And yet we've gotten ourselves in a situation where the scantlings requirements have, um, you know, have evolved to be a little bit on the thin side. And yeah. So we're... Um, we're working to make recommendations to ISO to fix that. But we have to fix it in a way that we don't create a mess, meaning we don't want to create a situation where, you know, a generation of boats is built according to ISO, but they can't race. I mean, that would be a terrible mess. And so we're trying to fix it by fixing it through ISO so that ISO, you know, evolves their roles to solve the problem. It's fascinating. I, I'm thinking that, so much of your work, a through line that I've heard throughout our whole conversation, is your work to modernize sailing, the rules, the, the boats. Do you see that as a, a driving force in your work? I don't know whether it's modernize so much as solve problems. And I, I mean, even my sailing now is fairly diverse. You know, on the one hand, I'll navigate Comanche, which is arguably the world's fastest monohull, you know, extreme in every respect. Um, and then, you know, a month later, I'll be racing a Cal 40, which was designed in 1962. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and on a good day upwind, you're going six. So, <laughs> but, but yet, you know, and people ask me, you know, how can you, how can you not be bored to tears in a Cal 40? And, the, and, you know, my answer is it's not so much the thing that makes a boat fun to sail isn't just how fast it goes. It's also how good a sailboat it is. And, you know, a Comanche is a great sailboat and it happens to go really fast. But, you know, a Cal 40 is also a great sailboat and it's just, you know, fun to be on board and it's fun to sail it because the way it goes through the water and you know the nice manners that it has and the feel in the helm and it's not it's not all about speed and that's one of the funny things about our sport as a participant sport is that you know lots of participant sports like you know take skiing you know snow skiing as an example um you know there's been huge technical innovation in the equipment and a lot of that innovation is to make it easier you know so the skis now are this hourglass shape and they're yeah, much easier yeah. to turn than they used to be and they don't go any faster they've just made it easier and sailing it seems like a lot of the innovation we do in our sport is to make it faster and then it makes it harder mm. and you know half of me that's okay because you know i navigate on boats like comanche and rambler and volvo boats and stuff and you know, hard is fine. We have, you know, these full professional crews and, you know, off we go. 
but it also seems like you know when the when the kind of the core of the sport is shrinking you know you look at that and you say wow look at the sailing that's going on at the pinnacle events look at the america's cup it's like hardly even sailing anymore and it's you know super fast and super extreme but um you know we're making the we're making the boats go faster but we're also making them much much harder to sail less accessible yeah that's a better way of saying it and i'm trying to say something i haven't really thought through but but so when you say you know i'm trying to modernize the sport i guess i'm not trying to modernize it from the standpoint of making the boats go faster and making them be harder to sail although i do do that i mean i'm active in that part of the sport sailing on around the world on Groupama or doing, you know, the Hobart races on Comanche. But what I'm trying to do is to fix problems that I've seen in the sport, you know, like the fact that all of our big boats are illegal and they're running lights or the fact that, you know, all of our races are illegal in the areas of TSSs or the keels are falling off more than they should. And then in some ways on the, you know, app project, to make sailing easier to get into, to make the rules less intimidating um, for people. So I'm trying to sort of pick off occasional problems that I see that I think, you know, I could maybe do some help. I'm not necessarily just trying to move the sport to become more modern because the way a lot of the parts of the sport that are the most modern, I think are kind of like you've said it well, they're not that accessible. And the oh, one other world sailing project that I didn't mention just to circle back a bit, is the um, offshore double-handed Olympic event. Mm. And this is something that, you know, in my committee, we first proposed it in 2014, I think it was. But, um, and nobody in world sailing took us seriously. But what we did was we, we looked through all of the comments that world sailing had received from the ioc the international olympic committee through the years and the ioc had just come to world sailing i think it was in 2014 saying what would you do if you had an 11th medal and nobody's ever considered an offshore event for an olympic event since the mid-60s so we decided well let's have a go so we went through all of the complaints that the IOC had had about sailing, which is it's tough to schedule because it's too windy or it's too light and the scoring is really complicated. And sometimes the boat that wins the gold didn't win the last race. So they didn't even sail in the last race. And <laughs> sometimes, you know, the winners determined by people on this committee meeting after the fact, and they just had all these complaints, you know, about sailing, the difficulty to schedule it, the difficulty in scoring, it was too complicated. Um, the gender equity, you know, the IOC has been leaning on sailing to be absolutely gender equal. So we came up with a proposal for an event that would be a double-handed offshore Olympic event. And to make scoring simple, we just have one race. So it'd be themed like the Olympic marathon. You know, the first boat back into the harbor after this three-day race wins the gold. We would do all of the jury hearings on the water. So if there was a penalty, it would be paid on the water. The boat would have to do circles or go back a certain distance. And we'd have a video, 24 hour a day video and audio off each of the boats the whole time. So no matter where you were in the world, no matter what time zone you're in, you could always go online and see what's going on in the French boat, see what's going on in the British boat. 
and then you'd have tracking so you could see the boats you know where they were you could probably have a e-sailing game to where people could sail alongside and then it would be gender equity there's a it's double-handed one man and one woman on each boat so you know it's absolute gender equity it would reflect in the olympic Games something about sailing that's distinctive which is we're long endurance sport and there's very few sports you know in fact i can't think of any that have three days endurance events as we have yeah and we have races where i mean i've done you know events where i've been at sea for 48 days and it's relatively common to do races that are over 20 days and you know even transpacs you can be at sea for 14 days on a slow boat like a cal 40 and yet um, we don't really reflect that in our Olympic events because, you know, the Olympic events are all, you know, real short. And so we said, well, let's have the longest endurance event of the entire Olympic Games. And that'll be sailing and that'll help position sailing, you know, for the general population. And in our case, we proposed it as three days and two nights. So you, you have a start and off the boats go. We would dynamically position and select the marks so that the race committee could bring the boats back into the vicinity early, send them on another sausage or two, so that the race would start on time, it would finish on time, and you'd race in whatever the conditions you happen to have, whether that's drifting all night or whether that's you know sailing in a mistral. So that would address the IOC's concerns about you know scheduling. The race would start on time, it would finish on time, and there'd be 24-hour-a-day video for anybody that wants to watch it and would be tracking. Um, and, and did the IOC go for it? Well, the IOC, the funny thing that happened was, oh, well, actually, I'll answer the question first, is yes, the, we did, it, 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 that is now an event for the 2024 Olympics. But the way it got there was interesting. So in 2014, we proposed it for the 11th medal. And World Sailing wasn't real happy about it, and the U.S. wasn't happy about it. But nevertheless, this was a proposal that came from one of the senior committees, and so they had to forward it on. The IOC came back and said, well, it turns out they weren't going to give sailing an 11th medal. But the IOC came back and said, but incidentally, we love that offshore proposal, that finally you guys have been listening to us, and you've addressed all of these you know, suggestions we've had about you know, sailing at the Olympics. So that was a big eye-opener for world sailing and but nevertheless world sailing kept voting it down so it's two or three different times that event got nearly proposed for the olympics and then it got voted down and then finally just uh, two years ago it came up again and this time it squeaked through so it it is one of the 10 events for the 2024 olympics that'll be held in france um, that's exciting yeah it is a that is very cool and that i think is probably you know, when we look back at what my committee did at World Sailing during the time I was chair of it, I think when we look way back, there'll be, you know, maybe we'll be able to talk about TSSs and running lights and stuff. But if, but the uh, Olympic offshore event will be a major. Are you there? Yep, still here. Oh, okay. I just lost your last word. A major accomplishment. Yeah, that'll be a big one. Stan, We've talked for an hour and a half and I've only hit a fraction of what I wanted to talk to you about, but um, I need to let you go. This has been fabulous and fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Sure. My pleasure. It's it's fun when you ask such insightful questions. Oh, well, thank you. That wraps up the interview with Stan Honey. Thanks for listening. 
couple episodes back, I mentioned the idea of getting together those who might be interested in a webcast, simply to chat about sailing in the Bay Area and beyond. I haven't forgotten about this, but uh, I just haven't had the time to put it together. But I'm going to look into setting something up, and I'll share a date, time, and way to access it when uh, the plans solidify. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing. <laughs>